we just watched was a video representation from the movie The Gospel of John. It depicts one of my favorite Bible narratives because it shows the overwhelming love of Jesus Christ for the sinner. Anyone who has given their heart to Jesus has stood before Jesus just like that woman did, dirty, guilty of sin, and totally dependent upon the richness and mercy of God. That's why I love that story so much. This morning I want to take just a little bit of time and dissect this narrative, as there are some things that are not immediately clear to us from a casual reading or even watching of this story. But before we get into the meat of the Gospel account, I have to start with something that may be appearing in many of your Bibles. In many of the modern translations of the Bible, there's a footnote before the Gospel of John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And it says something along the lines that this should not be in the Bible because the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not have this scripture in it. And I want to address that a little bit today. The Bible says that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So we want to make sure that this particular scripture is part of God's inspired word. So let's tackle that this morning. To do that, we have to talk a little bit about the history of, God, of John's gospel. John wrote his gospel during the last half of the first century, written around 80 to 100 AD. By this time in history, Jerusalem has been destroyed. The center of Christianity that had started in Jerusalem was now scattered throughout the Roman Empire. All the faithful had gone, and the original copies of the New Testament Gospels, including the epistles and the letters that were written by the apostles, were tightly kept within individual churches. Those documents were being carefully copied by converted Jewish scribes. So they, they didn't have printing presses, they didn't have internet, they didn't have any of these ways that we can get the Gospel out. It was literally somebody sitting there with the letter in this hand and just carefully copying it over and over and over again. And that's what they would do all day is make copies of these letters that the apostles had written that we now know as the New Testament. During this time, some minor persecutions rose up that led to the raw loss of some of the original copies of the New Testament. When I say minor persecutions, I mean that they weren't really widespread. There were still people being sent to the arenas. There were still people being martyred for their faith, but it wasn't hugely widespread. It was generally limited to small provinces within the Roman Empire. However, around 284 AD, a man named Diocletian became emperor of Rome. And Diocletian hated Christians. He hated Christianity. He actually employed the Jewish legions to go door to door in the cities of the Roman Empire, kick the doors in and search the houses of everyone, looking for anything that would link them to Christianity, any writings from the prophets, any writings from the apostles, and they would rip it out of the house. They would put those people to death and burn every copy that they could find. This went on for almost 20 years until a man named Constantine rose to power around 305 AD. Constantine is an interesting historical figure because he was the first Roman Empire, emperor excuse me, to be friendly toward Christianity. It was even reported that later he became a Christian and made Christianity one of the official um, religions of the Roman Empire. 
One of the things that, that he did is he reversed the purge set forth by his predecessor and started gathering all the known copies of, of the Bible and, and the individual letters that he could and bring those together into something that was called the Council of Nicaea in 323 A.D. But because of the intense persecution under Diocletian, the leaders of the churches had no idea where a lot of these letters were. They had no idea where a lot of the originals were. The originals were probably all destroyed by then, and the close copies of the originals were all they had left. And, but they still, they didn't know where a lot of these were. The Bible was being passed on and on by oral tradition because they couldn't own a physical copy without risking death. And what we have found out recently, very recently, within the last five years, we have found some of these copies, and they were in Egypt. The people of, of, the, of the Roman Empire, because the Roman Empire began to shrink during this time, Egypt was um, a safe haven for Christianity. So some of these scrolls, some of these epistles made their way into the, um, the uh, library of Alexandria. If you've ever heard of that, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was considered to be the largest library ever in existence at that time and contained all the writings of all the wisdom of all the people known in the world during that time. It was huge and massive. And so they started finding some of these scriptures around these sites and within the last five years. So that would have predated most of your Bible's publications where they said, well, the oldest manuscripts we ever found didn't have this in it. So the oldest manuscripts that we now have all have John chapter 8, 1 through 11 in it. Not only that, but we actually have witnesses from the early church fathers and early theologians that created much of the doctrine and belief that we have today. Two of these men wrote specifically to the fact that many of the churches left this part of John's gospel out of their copies. Pope Jerome talked about it, and St. Augustine talked about it. And Augustine was a very prolific writer, and he formed many of the doctrines of Christianity that we believe today. And he noted that John's, John chapter 8, 1 through 11 was part of John's original manuscript and had an interesting commentary about this. Augustine said that certain persons of little faith, or rather enemies of the true faith, fearing, I suppose, lest their wives be given impunity towards sinning, removing their manuscripts, the Lord's act, of forgiveness toward the adulteress, as if he who said sin no more had granted them permission to sin. Now to 21st century this a little bit, what Augustine was saying here is pastors were afraid to preach from this because they were worried that people would see, would see this woman getting off so easily and that wives of the husbands in the church would feel that adultery was okay. That's 21st century and exactly what he was saying. And that was a little bit true, because in the Greek church, in particular places like Corinth and Ephesus, sexuality was such a part of their culture that it was very, very difficult to keep it out of the church. It was very difficult to convince these people, even after they were born again, that God had very specific things to say about how they expressed themselves sexually and that he wanted it only in marriage. So many of these pastors in the early church refused to preach from this scripture, and some of them went as far as cutting this scripture right out of the scrolls that they had. They'd take a knife and just cut that right out of there so it could never be read from. 
So yes, indeed, many of the early documents did not have this scripture in it because they cut it out. The pastors cut it out. Now, since we believe that all scripture is inspired by God, it's not up to a pastor or a bishop or anyone else within the Christian church to remove a scripture because it's difficult. It's our job to explain the scripture and its difficulty to the body of Christ. And even when there's something in the Bible that we don't agree with or something in the Bible we don't understand, it's our job as God's children to simply say, Amen, Father. It's your way. I may not understand it, but I'll obey it because it's in your word. In summary, we can trust the Bible that exists in our pews today, in our laps, in our homes. Because God has preserved his word from, for centuries from people trying to destroy it, to distort it, and marginalize it in the minds of the cultures from which it speaks. So I wanted to get into that because, as I said, many of you may be reading that in your Bibles and wondering, well, why are we preaching from something that's, that you know, my Bible says might not even be Scripture? It is Scripture. It, is, it does appear in the earliest documents of the Christian church. So let's get into the meat of the actual scriptures. I want to point out several different things about this narrative that really bother me. And some of it is, is not readily apparent, but it shows the absolute corruption of the church that Jesus knew during this time. This corruption that the Jewish religious officials had done to the true faith that God had given the people. Before we get into that, let's just take a moment and seek God and ask His Holy Spirit to reveal the truth of this scripture to us. Father God, we just thank you, Lord. And I ask, Father, as we get into the meat of the scripture, as we get into the actual occurrences that happened, that you will help us to see the lessons that you would have us to learn, that you would help us to apply them to our lives, and that you will transform our thinking into a way that pleases you. And not only pleases you, but shows you to the whole world. Father God, I ask this in your name. Amen. So we're going to look today at everything the Jewish leaders did wrong here. I gave this message the title, Caught. But it just could have easily been titled, Trapped. It would actually been more accurate to call it that, because that is exactly what happened here. The scripture plainly says they were trying to trap Jesus. They were not trying to mete out God's justice. They were not trying to, to keep Israel pure. They were going to trap Jesus by what this woman had done. And what the scripture shows, aside from the beautiful picture of grace and forgiveness that Jesus shows to this woman, is it shows the length that a man-made religion will go to preserve its earthly power, its earthly status, or its earthly authority. So how was this woman caught? Let's just look at, at the fact of how this woman was caught. Anybody ever think about how did they catch this woman? I mean, I'm sure she didn't have her windows and her doors open. I mean, were the Pharisees just walking the temple one day as a group and they heard sounds of passion coming from some sister's house and they knew her, her husband was out of town so they kicked in the door and caught her? I mean, is that what happened? I mean, that, that's just kind of ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, did they catch this woman and then decide, oh, hey, now we have a conundrum we can bring to Jesus and, and trap him? No, this was a complete setup. It's my opinion that this woman was very well known in her community 
as a woman of loose morality and probably even a prostitute. And what this shows us is that she had probably been like this for years and that the Jewish high council, the priesthood, their teachers, the scribes, the Pharisees, they all knew of her existence and yet did nothing to try to bring her back into faith did nothing to try to minister to her right where she was, did nothing to tell her about the love of God that could be hap that could hap or she could make herself available for if she would just come and repent. All they saw was a sin. All they saw was a problem. All they saw was a blight in their community. That's all they saw. And I bring this up this morning because Jesus did not see a problem. He didn't see a blight. He didn't see a, a, a problem in their community. Jesus sees a person who is desperately in need of true love and of the grace of God. It's very likely that this woman has never known either in her life. Her whole worldview of men revolves about how they can use her to satisfy their own selfish desires. The only love she's ever known has been given to her by men who then toss her aside once their needs are met. And men, on this Father's Day, I would ask you how many of you have been guilty of the same thing. And please understand, I'm not some man of God thundering down on you from a pulpit because I have been guilty of the same thing in my life. There have been many times in my own life I have not treated women with the respect they deserve as fellow human beings created in the image of God. So I'm standing here with you. I would also say that one of the greatest destroyers of men in our time is the free and easily accessibility of pornography. It used to be that you'd have to go and sneak into some movie theater to view it. Then it was available, available via a video rental, but you'd still have to go and, and get it from somebody, so many people were shy about doing that. Now, someone could sit in the back of a church service and watch it on their mobile device with a headphone, just free over the internet. I say that because my pastor at our last church had me lock down our internet to make sure nobody could do that, because he had heard at a conference of somebody, an usher catching somebody doing that in a church service, sitting way in the back and watching that while the pastor was preaching. Pornography is not this horrible thing like it was. It's now very accepted. Its acceptance has grown to a proportion unseen in this earth, in my opinion, since the time of creation. I think Sodom and Gomorrah would blush at what we can watch on our phones, our computers, our electronic devices, or even what is broadcast for general viewing on TV now. Recently, I was flipping through the channels and I saw on broadcast TV, Fifty Shades of Grey was being shown. And if you don't know what it's about, please don't go look it up. It's just not a good, it's not a, a, a good godly representation of sexuality between a couple. And if I'm going to address anything specific about Father's Day, it would be this. Men, we need to renew a, and make a firm covenant with our eyes not to look upon any evil thing. And then we have to go through, go through with it. And make no mistake, men will justify this one, up one side and down the other of why it's okay. But pornography, whether hardcore, softcore, or just suggestive scenes on TV, 
they're all damaging to women. Every single one of them. And it's deadly to your spiritual walk with God. Many women who participate in these scenes and movies are victims themselves of sexual assault. Many of them have been sex trafficked and forced to do these things on the screen against their will or hooked on drugs by people who want to get them to do this stuff. So this woman in John chapter 8 is as much a victim of the selfishness of men as she is a cause of men falling into sin. In my opinion, that's one of the biggest reasons that Jesus shows so much mercy to her. If anyone could have picked up a stone and thrown it at her, it would have been the Son of God, the one who made the very law she was breaking. If anybody could have commanded her execution right now, it would have been the author of the law she broke. But Jesus shows her mercy. And he's able to show her mercy because he's getting ready to go to the cross and die for the very sin she's being accused of right there in the middle of that mob. And Jesus shows her mercy because he knows that this situation he is in is not an exercise in spiritual authority. He's no, he knows it's not an exercise in trying to keep Israel pure in the eyes of God. It's an effort to trap him in a no-win situation because that would cause the Jewish leaders to gain a victory over him and discredit him or have cause for the Jewish or excuse me the Roman authorities to kill him. So let's look at the way that this was meant to be a trap for Jesus. In John chapter 8, verse 4, it says that the Pharisees said, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. I don't know if they had a committee meeting and got together and tried to come up with a scenario to trap Jesus in a way that would make him stumble. I mean, I don't, I don't know how they thought this was going to work out. I imagine that they thought they had it one of two ways to accuse him either of heresy and not following the law, or they would have something to turn him into the Roman authorities for. And he's thinking, well, what are, what's, what are they going to turn him into the Roman authorities for? I mean, adultery really wasn't that illegal in Rome. It was, it was kind of something that was kind of winked at. So what, what were they going to turn him into? What we have to remember is that under Roman law, a person could not be put to death and they were, unless they were found guilty in a Roman court from a violation of Roman law. Therefore, if Jesus would have sided with them and said, yes, stone her to death, they could have turned around, gone to the Roman officials and say, hey, this guy is trying to lead an uh, uh, insurrection against Rome. You guys have to take care of that. And Pilate, early in his governorship, probably would have done just that, crucified Jesus a few years early. Well, that's the first scenario. The second scenario is that Jesus simply forgives this woman. Had he done that, he would have been guilty of heresy and violating the Old Testament law. And the Pharisees could have dismissed him in the eyes of the people as a heretic and destroying Jesus' ministry and his message. So that's the extent of the no-win situation that Jesus has been put into here. But it's also why he responded as he did with silence. He didn't even address it. And that's a lesson for us today. Listen, this life has the tendency to throw you into no-win situations, doesn't it? This life has a tendency to bring up a bunch of trash about you and accuse you of things that are so outrageous, but they still 
get spread around as truth. And I know because I've been there. It's happened in my life. And our initial reaction is to immediately go and defend ourselves. But sometimes the most spiritual thing we can do is just stay silent. Not speak. Let the Lord fight your battles for you. I'll say it again. Let the Lord fight those kind of battles for you. Because you trying to contribute into that battle is just going to mess up the Lord's plan. Jesus' silence is very instructional to us. The Bible says that he bent down and wrote on the dust of the ground. There's been commentaries and books and sermons and all kinds of stuff about what he, what he might have written, but we don't know exactly what it was. One of the more intriguing theories I read was that he wrote the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. He said, well, why would that may have convicted anybody? Because it would have been impossible for the Pharisees to witness a woman committing the act of adultery as a man, woman, I'll tell you this, it would have been impossible for a male to look at that and not covet it. And when he wrote that down, they were just cut to the heart. And it said that the oldest walked away first. So when Jesus said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, yeah, they started leaving. And if there's any good thing that comes for me getting older, it's this. If you have any amount of spiritual sensitivity within you, you realize the older you get, the humbler you should get. The John Oscar at 48 years old sometimes wants to go back to the John Oscar of 19 and smack him upside the head and say, boy, you ain't all that. Anybody else here could testify to that in their life? You want to go back to a younger you and smack him in the head? And hopefully that would be true in all of our lives, that the longer we walk with our God, the more we elevate them and the less we see in ourselves. And that really is a recipe for humility. Humility is the greatest destroyer of pride in our life. And that leads us to the third point about Jesus, the third point, that is Jesus' statement about judging others. When he said, he who is without sin. If you think about it, a lot of the discord in our families, in our churches, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, even nations, comes from a sense that we know better than others. Jesus isn't necessarily saying that we can't judge that which is evil. Jesus is asking us to use this rule that he gives in the Sermon of the Mount. When he said, do not judge or you will be judged. In the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured onto you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck from your eye, while at the same time you have this giant plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye. I think that most Christians, churches, denominations, and pastors will fall into one or two camps when it deals with how we deal with sin, both in our own lives and in the lives of others. Um, they're either going to be extreme legalists who think they need to point out every single thing a person does wrong, or they'll extend so much grace that their people are never convicted of sin because it's never talked about. Sin is rebellion against God. And it's something that's going to send you to hell if you continue to live an unrepentant lifestyle. But Jesus shows us the correct way here. 
The greatest love we can show our brothers and sisters in Christ is to gently guide them in the way of righteousness. While still trying not to be the Holy Spirit to that person, let them grow up in God and let God work out his salvation within their hearts. Worst thing we can do sometimes is try to help God. You see, the Pharisees in this story are legalists. They never reached out to this woman because they thought they were better than she was. They never took time to get to understand how she got herself into this situation. They never looked into her painful past. They never looked into what might have led her into a life of sin. They never looked at her upbringing that may have had an influence about the way she looked at God or any of the thousand different things that led her to this moment in time that they were now condemning her for. But this is why Jesus wants us to see everyone around us through his eyes and not our own. Listen, I know there are people in our lives we'd rather not be around. We have those people that we look at and we secretly think we're better than they are. And I can be just as guilty about this as anyone else. However, they're valuable in God's eyes. Because Jesus went to the cross to die for them the same as he did for you and me. And that makes them incredibly valuable in God's sight, regardless of whatever spiritual condition they might be in right now. Even if they cuss, even if they gossip, even if they drink, even if they're involved in extremely sinful behavior, they're still valuable in God's eyes. They were so valuable in God's eyes that he sent his son to die for them too. So if God did that, Shouldn't we place enough value of them to be a friend to them and to speak love toward them when we see them? Finally, I want to leave us with this thought. Jesus' final statement to this woman rings just as true to you and me as it did to her when he said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. It's often been said that God's grace is free for us because Jesus paid it all. And that is true, it's the essence of the gospel. However, the church in recent years has forgotten the second half of verse 11. And that true repentance means to go and leave your life of sin. The Apostle Paul agrees with this. In his letter to the Romans, he asks a question. Shall we continue sinning that grace may increase? And Paul is speaking to an argument in his day that was used by many Greek philosophers that if Christian grace is such a great thing, then we need more of it. And the way we get more of it is we just keep sinning so God's grace will grow and spread and fill the whole earth. Paul corrects that way of, of thinking by saying, shall we continue to sin that grace may increase? No. We are dead to sin. If you are born again, you die to your sinful nature. You are now supposed to be alive in Christ and not under the shackles of those things that he calls evil. So I ask you this morning, are you alive only in Christ or are you still clinging onto those things that the Bible calls evil? Because God wants you to be free of them. The Bible says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's not to give us a more comfortable jail cell, but it's to rip the door off the jail and lead us outside the prison and point us toward a new life. God wants to give you that life today. But it might require that you make some changes, that you trust him that his way is the right way. 
The first thing you need to do is accept Jesus as your Savior. The second thing you need to do is believe in Him as the only way to heaven. And the third thing you need to do is confess your sin. It doesn't need to be confessed to a person, but you need to confess it to God. And the fourth thing is with the Holy Spirit's strength to live a life that is pleasing toward God.